Welcome to Carl Chins Birmingham, brought to you by History West Midlands On Air. Well-known broadcaster and author Professor Carl Chin honours the working people, some famous but mostly forgotten, who shaped the history of Birmingham. He tells their stories as only he can, applauding their courage in adversity while recognising they were sinners as well as saints. Last month, we walked around Centenary Square, focusing on the life of John Baskerville, the celebrated printer and designer of the Baskerville Funds. A self-made man, he became wealthy through his own endeavours and lived prosperously in his mansion on Easy Hill, now the site of Baskerville House, next to the new library of Birmingham. In Baskerville's time, this was a rural location, just outside the built-up area of Birmingham, and Broad Street itself was unnamed and known only as the country lanes of Ailes Owen. Baskerville died in 1775, and over the next 20 years, Birmingham's population grew rapidly and greatly. A famed manufacturing town that boasted a bewildering variety of trades, it was a magnet that pulled in the young, adventurous and hopeful, looking for work from the villages of North Warwickshire and North East Worcestershire. But the hopes of many of those migrants, like those of the Birmingham born and bred, were too often dashed by hard times. None more so than in the summer of 1795, when the poor rose up against the hunger that they faced, and they rose up in anger. The wealthy of Birmingham called this outbreak of violence the scarcity riots, but only those who had never known what it was to be clammed could have so misnamed them, for these riots were about hunger, and 1795 was indeed a hard year when many hungered. The previous summer had been hot and dry, and it had led to a poor harvest. It was followed by a winter so harsh that farmers were unable to prepare their fields for the next spring. And when that did come, the weather was bad. With domestic wheat yields low, normally grain would have been imported, but supplies from abroad were severely disrupted by the war between Britain and revolutionary France. So, as supplies shortened, the price of wheat increased rapidly and sharply, thus increasing the cost of both flour and bread, the staple diet of the poor, of course. Those who earned little were many, and the many now had too little to eat. In the wake of the whirlwind, woken by weather and war, famine hovered above the land, waiting to swoop down and spread death and disease. With their stomachs half empty, the poor grew more and more angry, and that anger swelled with the belief that unscrupulous traders were profiteering from the misery of their hunger. Across the land, bread riots broke out. In Birmingham, they were ignited by rumour, that troublemaking twin of hard times, and they started here, where I'm standing now, at the bottom of Snow Hill, at its meeting with Summer Lane to my right, Water Street to my left, and Constitution Hill just ahead of me. It was said in that year that a poor woman had gone to a corn mill and bakehouse here on Snow Hill, owned by a Mr Picard. He then supplied a considerable number of local families with flour and bread, but on this occasion, the woman complained to Mr Picard's maidservant that the loaf that she had bought was less than usual in weight. Supposedly, the maid replied that the loaf could not now be afforded of a larger size at the customary price. And then she went on to add that we ought to be contented in Birmingham and not complain, as the condition here was much better than in other countries. The maid went on to state that she understood from the papers that scarcity was so great in France that the common people there were reduced to the necessity of eating grains. 
word spread that Mr. Picard himself had said that he would make the poor eat grains in their bread. Stirred up, a large crowd of mostly women gathered and became all the more furious when another rumour spread that Picard had buried a large quantity of corn under his mill. Stones and brick ends were thrown at the magistrates who sought to put down the trouble and Mr. Picard's premises were attacked. They were only saved from destruction by the arrival of dragoons from the barracks in Ashton, close to the modern Lawley Street middleway. Further rioting broke out that night. Henry Mason and a young man called Alan sadly were killed when the soldiers opened fire, whilst Margaret Bowler, Mary Mullins and George Hattery were arrested. They faced the death sentence for rioting. There was nothing like the fear of further disorder to encourage the wealthy to benevolence, and so it proved. In July 1795, a performance was held to raise money for the benefit of the poor, and a fund was begun to bring to the market a more ample supply of wheat and flour. The committee was able to bring in a large quantity of foreign corn to make it into bread to be sold cheaply to the poor. But these good intentions were confounded by what was decried in Arise's Birmingham Gazette in February 1796 as... The illegal confederacy formed to enhance the prices of grain. No miller would grind the corn. The feeling grew that the miller's monopoly should be broken, and this led to the formation of the Birmingham Flour and Bread Company, which aimed to produce both flour and bread more cheaply. A form of cooperative, it raised capital by the sale of shares to the public, and in July 1797, it opened the first ever steam-driven cooperative mill in Britain, at Holt Street, on the borders with Doddiston, and that's where I am now standing in Holt Street by the old Holt's Brewery. Today, this area is dominated by the buildings of Aston University, but then it was part of the newly developing district of Gloucester Green. A commentator declared to the steam that powered the mill that there was... No more gratifying object than the powerful and beautiful engine of Messrs Bolton and Watt, which puts in motion the whole machinery that thus prepares the stuff of life for the sustenance of man. To help the less prosperous, shares could be bought in instalments and the company soon boasted 1,360 shareholders, many with only one share each. Still, only those with five shares or more could serve on the committee that ran the company's affairs, although elections were held on the basis of one vote per share, which ensured more democratic accountability. Some shareholders were indeed well off, but Matthew Bolton himself refuted strongly any suggestions that the Birmingham Union Mill was an exercise in philanthropy. He declared that it was not erected by the opulent for the benefit of the poor labouring workmen, but it was erected principally by the latter class for the benefit of themselves. Each shareholder in the company was required to take flour or bread equal to half a peck per week per share. As a baker, as well as a miller, additional savings were passed on with cheaper bread. The clerk to the company told the Privy Council in 1800 that... We have an advantage over the baker by buying with ready money and by not giving credit for what we sell. Our sale is also more extensive and, as we grind and dress our own wheat, we can perform the whole operation of converting wheat into bread cheaper than others, for we have the whole profit of the miller and the baker. So successful was the Birmingham Cooperative in lowering the price of bread and in giving dividends to its shareholders that a new Union Flour and Bread Company was formed. With the old Union Mill on the east of the town, in about 1810, this new company opened the appropriately named New Union Mill 
on the western edge of Birmingham. Like its forerunner, it boasted a Bolton and Watt steam engine and a series of engine houses. The new union mill was down in the aptly named Mill Street, which was changed to Grosvenor Street by the early 1880s. And that's where I am now, just across from the Crescent Theatre. The new Union Mill Company, as it became in 1856, ceased baking bread in the early 1880s. Thereafter, it struggled as a miller because of the growth of imports of foreign flour. The business was sold in the mid-1890s and became the City Flour Mill, and that seems to have disappeared by the late 1920s. But its buildings, some of them at least, remain in use here in Grosvenor Street and are now called the Old Union Mill. But back in 1810, when the mill had opened, its buildings had stood in a decidedly rural location. They were almost on the corner with Sheepcoat Street in Ladywood, looking up towards Broad Street and where the Novotel now stands. By the early 19th century, Broad Street had got its name, but then it ended at Sheepcoat Street. From there to Five Ways, what we know today as the lower part of Broad Street was called Islington. And the other end of Sheepcut Street, going from Grosvenor Street down, was then called Nelson Street. Like Islington, Nelson Street was a name that was only short-lived. But it had been given following the great victory of Lord Nelson against the French and the Spanish at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. By the early 1830s, however, Nelson Street had gone and all of this stretch from Broad Street down to St Vincent Street West was known as Sheepcote Street. But although Nelson Street as a name didn't last for long, one connection with the hero did remain locally, and that was the short Nile Street. This ran from the bottom of Sheepcote Street, just before St Vincent Street, and was close to where the National Indoor Arena now looms up. That's where I am, looking at the NIA. As for Nile Street, it disappeared in the post-war redevelopment of our city, but it recalled the Battle of the Nile in 1798, when Nelson had also been victorious over the French. Fortunately, though, Sheepcote Street remains, and I'm really glad that it has kept its name, because I've always been fascinated by it. Why? Well, it calls out to us of the importance of farming in early modern Birmingham. A cot, sheep cot, was a cottage, and obviously sheep were kept hereabouts by that cottage. At their meeting in April 1698, the governors of King Edward School, who owned lots of land around here, mentioned leasing the lands called Shipcut. Interestingly, until the later 20th century, the working class pronunciation of Sheepcote Street was Shipcut Street. This Shipcote farm was down between the modern Ladywood Middleway and Summerhill Road, and it had been called Rotten Fields. The ownership of the school hereabouts is recalled today by King Edward's Road, which comes off Sheepcote Street. Well, from at least the later 17th century, the windy Sheepcote Lane went from what would become Broad Street along the modern Sheepcote Street through St Vincent Street and Summerhill Street to the Sandpits. Until the redevelopments of the 1980s, part of Sheepcote Lane itself remained, about where Nelson's school stands today, of course, remembering the hero of Trafalgar. So, when the new Union Mill, and confusingly today called the Old Union Mill, was set up, it was in the countryside. Indeed, in 1877, an old man wrote to the Birmingham Daily Post, reminiscent of his time as a child 60 years ago in this neighbourhood. And he recalled that the town was then surrounded by small gardens that were separated by high hedges. 
These, so he said, were prolific of apples, gooseberries, currants, strawberries and other fruits, and as well, there were lots of vegetables. They afforded a pleasant afternoon or summer retreat for many people. As for Broad Street, it had few houses, and above Sheepcote Street, the whole district was gardens or fields. These disappeared swiftly as back-to-back -back houses, workshops and factories lined newly cut-out streets. I've walked just a few yards up from the NIA and come down by the cut, the canal, and I'm under Sheepcote Street Bridge, walking towards the wonderful Fiddle and Bone pub. Newly refurbished, it's one of the few buildings in a district of modernity that proclaims Old Birmingham. So many of our Victorian Edwardian buildings here and elsewhere in our city have gone. And if they've gone, then there is no reminder at all of the hard times endured by so many of our people in this neighbourhood in particular. In one of the wealthiest cities in the richest nation on earth, there were many Brummies who, through no fault of their own, had to fight daily against the unyielding force of that relentless enemy called poverty. Their travails are highlighted by Will Thorne in his autobiography, My Life's Battles. He was born just a few miles to the north of here, in Farm Street, Hockley, and against all the odds stacked against him, he went on to found the Gas Workers' Union in the 1880s and to become Labour MP for West Ham. Born in 1857, Thorne knew what it was to rough it. He was at work from the age of six after his father was killed. Though but a child, he turned a wheel at a rope walk. It was mighty work, 12 hours a day, Monday to Friday. And even on a Saturday, when he finished early, Will Thorne had to go to a barber's and lather the faces of the chaps who wanted a shave, as he did again on Sunday morning. Will Thorne knew all too well that there were Few rosy patches, if any, in the fight for bread in the lives of the manual labourer with little skill or education. Just long years of drudging work in the past and in the future. And even though we grew up in what might have seemed to outsiders a pleasant sounding place, Thorne wrote that Farm Street must have been named for some contrary reason, for he had... No memories of the free air of a farm during those early far-off days, just the ugly houses and cobbly, neglected streets that were my only playground for a few short, very short years. The same might have been said of all those Birmingham back streets from which all traces of the countryside had been banished, bar for names that hark back to a rural past. Amongst them was Sheepcut Street. By the mid-19th century, no sheep grazed here. Instead, the street ran through a mass of back-to-back -back houses, factories, workshops and commercial premises. So come with me on a walk from the canal side, back under the bridge, up to Sheepcote Street, to close with Broad Street. Because then as now, Broad Street was a bustling thoroughfare that linked the wealthy of Edgbaston with the town centre. Yet, though it may have been a tree-lined boulevard, packed with grand churches and imposing factories of some of the most world-renowned of Birmingham's manufacturers, still, just a few yards away, Poverty haunted the lives of too many, and it haunted them all the days of their lives. Childhood was something for the children of the rich and the well-off. A poor child had no childhood free of care, nor did he or she have childish things or childish thoughts. Little grown-ups they were, with responsibilities way beyond their years. Work or want dominated their lives, and for little Emma Law, aged eight, and of Shipcut Street, her work killed her. One day, in January 1883, 
Her mother left Emma in the house with some other children. Emma was cleaning the hearth when a red-hot ember dropped out of the grate and onto her apron. It set her clothes on fire. And sadly, so badly burnt was poor Emma that she died the next day. The jury returned a verdict of accidental death. Tragically, these were too common in Backstreet, Birmingham, where oldest sisters were too often little mothers. Known as our wench by those who loved her, such a girl had to mind siblings and clean a home because poverty forced their mothers out of such homes in search of work to stave off hunger. Yet, for all the hard colour of mothers in factories and in the brewers washing the clothes of the prosperous and in the home carding buttons, hooks and eyes and much more, for all that, too many children were clammed. Too many children were hungry. Seven years after Emma died so terribly, a few concerned and caring men acted to help the hungry children of Birmingham. They set up a Cinderella club, following the lead of that in Manchester. In that city, local journalist and socialist Robert Blackford had called for good-hearted people to form groups to provide food and entertainment for the poorest children in all industrial towns. The leading figures in Birmingham were Mr J.C. Hawkes, Arthur Keep, Albert Cook and Arthur Rawlings. Once a week for 11 weeks from the start of 1890, he and his friends arranged a weekly supper, followed by entertainment, and put it on in a different location in the poorest parts of working-class Birmingham. They paid for the suppers themselves and with the help of old friends. Only the poorest, raggedest and hungriest children were given tickets for the events held at the board schools in Hope Street, Summer Lane, Fox Street and Oozel Street, which is just down from where I'm standing now by the NIA. And that was very near to where poor Emma had lived in Sheepcote Street. And it may have been the school where she had gone to if her duties at home had allowed her to. Despite all the wealth of England, the hardships of poor children improved but little over the next few decades, as Helen Butcher, born Helen Smith, knew only too well. She was born in 1917 at three back of five, Shipcut Street. Which was in a yard or court near the junction with Broad Street. It was known locally as the Big Yard and lay at right angles to Sheepcote Street and parallel with Broad Street. These red brick and slate roofed houses were called Attic High, with a single ground floor room, a bedroom and an attic. The attic had a small fireplace and so did the bedroom, though we could not afford to use them. The bedroom also held a cupboard where we kept clothes. This big yard was almost opposite Essington Street, which is where I'm standing now. It was cleared of its houses and other buildings in about 1929. And soon after, a large new building was put up that later became the Birmingham and Midland Motor Omnibus Company. That too was swept away when Brindley Place and all around it was developed. And I'm looking at where the big yard would have been, probably somewhere underneath what is today the Novotel. Funny, isn't it, when you think about it, all those people visiting Birmingham, staying in bedrooms above the site where people like Helen and her folk struggled to make a living. Helen's life, back to back and up the yard, was shared by scores upon scores of thousands of Brummies, my mum and grandparents amongst them. And it was a life that was shared from the early 19th century right to the end of the 1960s when the last of these back to back houses were knocked down. Now in Glasgow, Dublin and much of London, tenements were the dominant form of housing for poorer people. But in Birmingham, Leeds, Sheffield, Salford and much of the black country, it was back-to-backs. 
Why? Well, jerry builders wanted to maximise the amount of badly built dwellings they could put up quickly on as small a piece of land as was possible. They sought a quick return, so they threw up terraces, which literally were back to back. Small and badly built, by the early 20th century, there were over 40,000 back-to-backs in Birmingham with over 200,000 people living in them. That was a city within a city. A city that was the size of Bolton or Salford or Cardiff. But it was a city whose people were too often ignored. Back-to-backs were built in terraces of four, five, six and sometimes more dwellings. The houses in each terrace shared their back wall with another house and behind that was part of yet another terrace. So, with no back door and no back windows, these small houses were dark and cramped, having as they did but one room downstairs and often with a tiny scullery above the cellar head. That one room served a lot of purposes. With its big black range, it was a kitchen and it was also a living room, a washroom, a workroom and sometimes a bedroom. Depending upon whether the back-to-back was of the two-storeys type or attic high like Helen's, there would either be two small bedrooms on the one level upstairs or a bedroom above, which was the attic. Often, there was a damp and dark cellar below the one room downstairs. Each terrace that fronted the street had another at its back, and that terrace faced into what was called officially a court, but which was known by Brummies as a yard. This yard was approached through an entry between two front houses, and it usually had another terrace at right angles to the street, and behind which was another terrace facing into another yard. In Helen Butcher's childhood, these yards were provided with communal water closets shared between two or more families. These just recently replaced dry pan closets. The yard also had an area for rubbish that was called the miskins, the term that was later given to dustbins by Brummies, and it had a shared washhouse that was always referred to as the Brewers. Whether fronting the street or in yards behind them, back-to-back houses were hard and fast by factories and innumerable works, and they were enshrouded in a gloomy setting, blackened as it was by smoke and smog. In many neighbourhoods, indeed, it was as if the lights had been doubted permanently, whilst any freshness in the air was driven out by the smells of industrial pollution. Huge numbers of working-class folk had nowhere else to live, and yet here, where the environment was so hostile and harmful to health, they strove to stay clean and to forge close-knit neighbourhoods. And they also battled for respectability and for a better world for those yet unborn. Those backstreet Brummies, those whose address was back of, were remarkable. They grew up in tough times and in a harsh environment, the hardness of which was leavened by the solidarity and support shown by neighbours and kin one to another. As part of a remarkable people, they knew that life is not about me and I, rather it is about we and us, about giving and not taking, about sharing and not being selfish. In the midst of adversity, they created something most special, extended families, kinship networks, neighbourliness and communality. And thanks to Helen Butcher's insightful and compelling book called The Treacle Stick, those special people of her yard, her street and her neighbourhood live on. I've come across from Essington Street to the edge of Brindley Place, right by the Novotel. And standing here, knowing that this is where Helen Butcher grew up in the big yard, it's hard to imagine what her life and Sheetcut Street would have looked like in her day. But thankfully, her words draw a powerful and vivid picture for her readers. Helen's mother had 11 children, of whom only three survived. 
Her father died when she was just seven, so then her mom had to rely on what was called the parish or the treacle stick, hence the title of her book. This was doled out by... Comfortable, worthy, middle-class people. Who sat in judgement and... You knew their power. They could feed or starve you. It was a humiliating system, and the deep embarrassment suffered because of their humiliations by Helen and her mum were shared by countless honourable working-class men, women and children. They were punished for being poor by a hypocritical and prejudiced society dominated by the rich who themselves thrived on the exploitation of the poor. As Helen made plain... The poor in those days were like sitting ducks. We had no chance. We did not know who to complain to or how to do it and had no expectation of being treated with respect if we did. Yet, Shipcut Street was not a dismal place, as Helen explained. All the hawkers and tradesmen shouted out their wares. You could have a man with a handcart heaped with bananas shouting about what he had to sell and the price. Nearby, there would be another hawker with tomatoes yelling at the top of his lungs to outshout the banana man. In competition would be the coalman with his horse and cart. He also had a living to make. The rag and bone men not only shouted, but blew trumpets. They were not musical. They just made a noise. Added to the hawkers' cries were the factory bulls or sirens, telling the workers when it was time to start work. The bull of each works had its own distinctive sound, so there was no excuse for being late. And although Helen's people lived amidst the pollution of factories and trains, her mother was like so many, spotlessly clean, and her pride and joy was a table. She taught Helen to scrub it along the grain and... Lord help me. If I started to scrub in circles, I would get a punch wherever her hand made contact. Soap was not used for this type of wood, but a slab of hard substance called bath brick. That table was scrubbed really white. Fit to eat off, Mother would say. Then, over the fireplace, was a shelf draped along the edges with a length of chenille velvet and held in place by ornamental brasses screwed into the wood. Along the whole length of the fringe ran a double brass chain. Helen recalled that... Friday was brasses cleaning day and fish day. I hated fish, but loved to do the brasses. We were poor, but clean. There could be no greater tribute to the determination and fortitude of countless mothers like Helen's, who strove valiantly for respectability, despite every trial and tribulation that life and poverty threw at them. They were indeed poor but clean. I am proud to be the son, grandson and great-grandson of such women. Colchins Birmingham is a History West Midlands production. For more information, visit the website at www.historywm.com.